Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you again. Good to be back. Josh, I'm not sure that you can ask me to speak for two weeks in a row because it obviously has a bad effect on your church attendance. <laughs> Just something to put away in the, in the memory banks. It was really great to hear this morning what you're doing with Orange Sky. And uh, while that, it's true that that's not a Christian organisation, I happen to know that a Christian foundation is one of their major funders. So it's interesting to see funds going from a Christian foundation to an organisation doing social good and then the church making use of that facility. So that's that's really fantastic and good to hear, a great initiative. Um, so this morning I was uh, asked to speak about a transparent heart. If we can have the slides up, thank you, that's great. Um, and I'll be doing that. In this passage, you probably picked up that Paul kind of... I think the expression we might use is that Paul really spills his guts in this thing, really. Ah. And um, it, it, it's really, he really opens his heart and I want to explore why that is and so on uh, as we go on. But before I do that, I just want to show you one picture. Uh, last week I showed a picture of Juvenal and Joshua and Simon, whom you support as a church. And I showed a picture of Joshua and Sylvie with their son Eric. And Anthea, my wife, thought it might be good if I showed you this picture this week because that's the difference that a bit of love and care makes. Uh, the photo on your right, no, on your left, okay. The photo on your left was taken in 2013. That's Eric with uh, one of his siblings and his parents at the home where they lived that we visited when we were there in 2013, a very poor home. And in the last 12 months, uh, Joshua and Sylvia have taken Eric in and you just see the difference in the whole tone of that boy's life. So that's the difference a bit of love and care can make. It's not that uh, Eric's parents are bad people. They just don't have the capacity to care for their family. Uh, they lived in a in one room of a mud hut that probably had three or four rooms. That was a very poor circumstance. Um, lots of issues in their lives, but they're just not capable of looking after Eric. So Joshua and Sylvia have taken them in. And I was thinking this morning how typical that is of... Um, many stories that I see in Africa where people take other people's children in so that they might have a life. I think of Tracy King at the King's Children's Home that we support in uh, in South Africa. Uh, they've currently got 70 kids in care, but in addition to her own three children, Tracy has adopted six local children as well. I think of uh, Jean-Baptiste Mugurura who's taken extended family members into his home in Rwanda. I think of Mark and Cindy Paris at Durbanville Community Church uh, who've adopted a local girl who had a bad story and, and so on the story goes. Because there's not the social welfare that we kind of have here, people take greater responsibility for one another in that way. And all of these people I'm talking about are people who are leaders, uh, people who have their own issues and yet their hearts are open to other people and it's a privilege for me and what we do with help to be involved with these kind of people. And this is a little help ad. If you'd be interested in getting our newsletter, you can go to the website, which is on the screen there, and there's a contact page, and if you fill out the details, we'll send you a newsletter about uh, about every four to six weeks, something like that, depending on how energetic uh, and on the ball I am. But thank you again for the support that you as a church give. Now, uh, it's... Very interesting, I don't know whether you did this background about the letter, but we, we understand that there were at least four letters to the Corinthians, but of course we only have two of them. And we know that because uh, Paul refers 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to a letter previously that he'd written. So we know there's one letter. So 1 Corinthians is the second letter. It gets a bit confusing when you get into this kind of thing. But 1 Corinthians is actually the, the second letter. And then there's a third letter that we don't know about, uh, that we don't have, that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians. And it'll actually appear uh, in one of the passages that we deal with today. So I just wanted to give that little bit of background for you if you haven't had that. Now, as well, you'll have noticed in this in this reading that we had that Paul is speaking a lot about his ministry and about what he did and the good that he did. And I said last week that often we find that Paul, particularly in the book of 2 Corinthians, is defending his ministry, defending his credentials as an apostle, saying why they should, uh, if you like, believe in him, why they should follow him, why they should trust him. And that's because the Corinthians in particular had a bit of a tortured relationship with Paul. And there's hostility towards him. In fact, if I remember correctly, when I first got the brief for this message today, the original title was A Transparent Heart in the Face of Hostility. I think that's the way it was actually expressed to begin with. And then it got truncated to A Transparent Heart. But you need to understand that when Paul spills his guts here, he's doing it in the context of a broken relationship. He's doing it in the context of people who don't believe in him anymore. And he's trying to correct that reality. And that's the grid through which I want to look at this today. There are many things that we could talk about uh, from this great reading, but there there are many things here that are really important. But I just want to focus on this idea of Paul opening his heart to these people in order to restore the relationship that they once had. Now, one of the things that we learn from this passage is that previous to this, previous to whatever happened, they had a very warm relationship. Now, you know how relationships go. They go well and they go badly. They flourish and they fail. They have friction in them. Well, that's normal kind of stuff. But Paul and the Corinthian church, and particularly he as a spiritual father in that context, they had a really warm relationship. And referring to Titus, he says, He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. But something had happened. Something had come into their relationship. And here Paul refers to that letter that we don't have. He says, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. You see, in Paul's role as an apostle, as a spiritual father, as a pastor, there were things that he had to say to them that were uncomfortable for them to hear. He brought correction into their life. And the effect of that was that there was emotional hurt that they experienced from Paul. Now, it's always hard when those that we love and those that we respect speak negatively into our lives, isn't it? You know, we, we take that pretty harshly. You know, we, we can cope with somebody we see as a critic, if you like, criticising us, but when it's somebody close to us, somebody we really love, we really respect, that's often hard to take. And such was the experience of the Corinthian church when Paul corrected them. Now, of course, there was impact for this. And we read in chapter 7 and verse 2 that Paul says to them, Make room for us in your hearts. What does that tell me? They had withdrawn emotionally. They'd pulled back 
in their relationship from Paul. Something had happened in their hearts that made them take a step back from that. And he goes in chapter 6 and verse 12, he says, you are withholding your affection from us. He says, he talks about his affection for them, but he says they are withholding their affection from him. So their hearts have closed down to Paul. And maybe you've experienced that in your life when somebody's hurt you and nothing appears to change on the outside, but on the inside, your heart's a bit closed down towards that person, towards listening to them, towards being with them, towards interacting with them. So really their hostility was expressed in what I would call passive aggression. So they're not out there beating the drum saying, Paul did this, Paul did that, Paul you're this, Paul you're that, we're going to get Paul. It wasn't that kind of thing. We're not going to we're not going to punch Paul on the nose, not that kind of aggression. But nonetheless, there was aggression towards Paul because they withdrew. Now, I, I came from a house where the aggression was open. You know, where there were pots and pans thrown and teapots hit walls and all sorts of things happened in the house that I came from and there was lots of shouting. And one of the things that, you know, Anthony and I have talked about sometimes because she came from a diff- very different kind of house that I came from in the way that you solve problems just because there's no pots or pans being thrown just because there's no shouting it doesn't mean that there's still not aggression and there's aggression towards Paul here expressed in the withdrawal of affection just hold on to that idea we'll come back to that in a little while the way that the Corinthians reacted here was not untypical for us as a human because you see when we're when we are hurt, what do we want to do? We want to protect ourselves from being hurt again. True? Who likes all the masochists? Who likes being hurt all the time? No, none, that's good. Great that nobody responded to that appeal. Um, we don't like to be hurt, so in order to protect ourselves, we shut down, we perhaps withdraw, we don't give anything to the relationship because we're afraid that we'll be hurt all over again. Now, I'm not talking here about if some abuse has been perpetrated against you. That's a whole different level of stuff we're talking about. I'm not talking about that. So please, if, if you've been, if you've experienced some serious kind of abuse, I'm not talking about that here and I'm not diminishing anything that's happened to you. But this is in the general web and conduct of relationship. And typically, when we withdraw, we don't give anything to the relationship as well. And really, what will happen in the end, if we stay in that situation, is that the relationship will die. It will mark the end of the relationship. Think Princes William and Harry. Just think about that for a moment. For those of you who follow the royal family and all of those things. But think of those people who have withdrawn from one another. Now, I'm not commenting on who's right and who's wrong. I've got no idea about any of that stuff. But there is a withdrawal and a distance. And unless somebody does something, it's only going to get worse. Unless somebody takes the initiative to restore that relationship, it will only become worse. Because the, the longer you remain separate from people, the longer you stay in your corner, the longer you don't contribute anything, the greater the distance grows. And the end of that... The end of distance is actually death in terms of the relationship. And maybe some of you have lived long enough to have seen 
the death of relationships that you've had with people. Uh, I can think of a good friend that I, that I had, somebody I value, would still value a relationship with very highly indeed, but they no longer give me the privilege of having relationship. Now, I uh, can't go into the story, obviously, for all sorts of reasons, but I would say that the, the circumstances that surrounded this were quite minor. But this person said to me, I'll never trust you again. And you know what? They've lived up to their word. Uh, and I've made multiple efforts to reach out across that, that barrier, but it's never come back because they're not willing to overcome that hurt in their life. But I know that unless somebody makes an effort to reach out, nothing will happen. And so Paul here in this passage is really reaching out to be reconciled. And in the process, he reveals his heart. He shows his true self. Now, one of the, one of the pains that I've discovered of leadership is that unless the leader opens their heart, nobody else will. I learned that when I first started leading Bible study groups, that if I wanted people to share, I had to be willing to share. Somebody has to take the initiative. Now, natively, I am a shy person. I do not like sharing myself. I do not like sharing my deep secrets. You may not think that that's me because you see me in this space. But it's something as a leader I learned I had to do, I had to be vulnerable in order to make it possible for other people to share. And so Paul here, in fact, makes himself very vulnerable in reaching out to the Corinthians church, the Corinthian church, because there is the possibility that his advances could be rejected. So there's great vulnerability here. So what does Paul do? Well, in six, chapter 6, verse 11, he says, We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. So Paul reminds them that from his perspective, his heart has always been for them, open to them, and even though they are withholding their affection from him, he is not withholding his affection from them. You see, what often happens is, I withhold my affection from you, and you respond by withholding your affection from me. That's a kind of a normal sort of human response. But actually, in response to them withholding their affection, Paul reaches out and demonstrates, shows, continues his affection towards them. That's not an easy thing to do. And he, so he expresses to them that despite their withdrawal, he's not going to hold back from them at all. And really he articulates to them a desire to be restored, to be in good relationship with them. Please open your hearts to me so we can be together again. That's a reasonable kind of request, isn't it? And he reaffirms to them the long-held affection he has for them. Verse 2 of chapter 7, Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I, I don't say this to condemn you. I've said this before, that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. What does that mean? Paul is saying... You know, 
I'm prepared to live with you. I'm prepared to be with you. I'm prepared to stand alongside of you. I'm prepared to, I think this means to die with you or to die for you. I think that's what he's saying. My affection for you is so great. My commitment to you is so great that I'd be willing to die for you. That's, that's a pretty awesome kind of depth that Paul would go to. Maybe you have relationships with a few people in your life like that. You'd be prepared to die for them in that sense, in the literal sense or in the, in a metaphorical kind of way that you'd be willing to give up everything for their sake. That's what Paul was willing to do. And he reaffirms to them that this is still true despite the fact that they are a bit standoffish towards him. This is kind of an amazing sort of passage. And then he goes on and he tells them how proud of them he is. He says, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. I'm proud of you. Now you think when somebody is holding back, right, it's hard to reach out across that gulf that they've created and express confidence in them. But that's what Paul was doing here. Saying, don't forget that I'm proud of you and what you have accomplished. And we know that the the Corinthian church was loaded with problems. We read that, uh, we understand that from the book of 1 Corinthians. But still Paul was proud of them and he affirmed that. And this is part of him initiating a restoration with them. And he reminds them that they've journeyed together. And that whole section from chapter 2 uh, through verse 6 is all about how they've journeyed together. I'll read on from verse 5. When we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, and but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, which is from them, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. So he's saying we've been through stuff together. So... I want to be restored to you. I'm affectionate towards you. I'm not withholding my affection from you. I'm confident in you. I'm encouraging you. And please remember what we once had. And I think that when we're trying to restore a relationship, this is an important part of the deal. Hey, you, you, you know how we used to be best friends. You know how we used to do those things together. You know how we used to have good fellowship together. You know how we used to walk together. Let's do that again. Let's not forget that. That's the kind of thing that Paul is doing here as he's speaking with the Corinthian church. Now, it's very interesting the way the New Living Translation uh, put this next section. Uh, slightly different in the NIV, which I'm reading for, but the, the essence is still the same. Because you kind of got one of these apologies that's not an apology. I hate apologies that aren't apologies personally. You know, somebody says, oh, I'm sorry, but, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm sorry, but I had good reason for doing it. No, no, are you sorry or aren't you sorry kind of thing. And so we need to understand what Paul is saying sorry for here. And he talks about the letter, the one that we don't have that he'd sent. And in my version, it says, if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy not because you're made sorry, not because you sorry, not because you're made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. So what is Paul saying? Look, when I sent you the letter, I really didn't intend to hurt you. I didn't intend to cause hurt. And I feel sorry 
that it caused hurt. So yes, I'm, I'm sorry that I hurt you, he's saying. But, he's got a little but there, but I'm not sorry that I actually sent the letter because see what good it's done. So this is one of these kind of, kind of tricky areas here where Paul is both, he's saying sorry for the hurt, but not sorry for what caused the hurt. That's very interesting, isn't it? But he's trying to help them to see that his intention was not to hurt, but to help. Now, sometimes when people are hurt, they can't see that. And I wonder how they reacted to this on Paul's part. You know, I often think that unless an apology is fulsome and complete, it's not really an apology, right? And so it's a bit hard to interpret this in, in in the light of that. And so he encourages them to see beyond the hurt to the good outcome that resulted. He says, godly sorrow, oh sorry, uh, for you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. So you might have been hurt, but in the end it didn't do you any harm because the letter produced the outcome that God desired. And then he goes on to talk about godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, eagerness, etc., etc. So he's saying, please, can you see beyond your hurts to what good the letter did? But yes, I'm still sorry that I hurt you because it wasn't my intent to hurt, it was my intent to help. I don't know how you would respond to an apology like this. You don't have to answer me. I might struggle with an apology like this because I'd think that the person was trying to have it both ways kind of thing. But Paul is doing his best here to be honest and open-hearted with these people, to apologise for the pain that he's caused, but explaining that his purpose was not pain. And remember, it's all being done by letter. There's no direct communication here in terms of people sitting together in the one room and that kind of thing. And letters are always problematic. Texts are even worse. Don't ever try and do this stuff by text, seriously. Emails are also shocking because you don't get the tone. Uh, I had people say to me, why are you angry with me? And I've gone, I didn't think I wrote an angry email at all. So you just have to be careful about what you put in writing. And then really... He concludes this, in a sense, by again expressing confidence in them. In verse 15, he says, uh, he's talking about Titus and his affection for you. He says, it's all the greater when he remembers that you're obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. So again, this is all wrapped up in pre-existing relationship, the confidence that Paul had for the people, The fact that he was uh, opening up his heart on his motivation and all those kinds of things so they could really see who he was in the context of who he had been in their life with a good dose of expressing confidence uh, in it. Now, I want to talk with you about this idea of being open. How could Paul be like this? You see, one of the... I'll just go back. Sorry, I've gone the wrong way. One of the... One of the interesting things about this is I've tried to find out what happened as a result of this. And I can't. So the outcome is a bit ambivalent, a bit uncertain. 
So did they accept this as an apology from Paul or didn't they? What happened to their relationship after this? I can't really find out. Most commentators you read talk about how how Paul and the Corinthians had a an up and down kind of relationship, but that's as far as it goes. But I can't see anybody who addresses this question of what happened as a result of Paul saying this to the Corinthians. So we're left in this uncertain space. But I'd suggest to you that Paul was able to do this with the Corinthians, not just because of his relationship, pre-existing relationship with, with them, but because of how he saw himself in Christ. You know, you, Stuart had us... Uh, Listen to those beautiful words of that song about everything being wrapped up in Jesus, right? Well, the health of our relationships actually depends on how we see ourselves in Jesus. Our ability to be open with others depends on how we see ourselves in Jesus. If we're not secure in Jesus Christ and who we are in Jesus Christ, In every way, I don't just mean in the the salvation sense, but I mean in who he made us to be, what our personality is, all those kinds of things. If we're not secure in those places, we're not going to be as open in our relationship. We're going to engage in a lot of self-protection mechanisms. We wouldn't do that in church, would we? You know, I I have a good friend who used to be in ministry who's very involved in Alcoholics Anonymous these days because he's an alcoholic. He always was. But he ended up not being able to do ministry because it got the better of him at one point in his life. And he said to me, I love being in Alcoholics Anonymous because in Alcoholics Anonymous, we're all sinners. And we all know we are. And we all turn up with that mindset And at our meetings, we all talk about how we're sinners and how we failed and how we need help. He said, we never did that at church. We all turned up pretending that we're all good people. It's very interesting. That's that's been a very interesting perspective for me to consider. And one of the the problems for us as as churches is that because we say this is how one is supposed to live, often we feel the need to turn up and project that that's how we're living so that we'll be acceptable in a space that's one of the problems that we have in church and if we you know none of us turn up with a sign around our neck saying had a fight with the wife this morning or yelled at my kids today or you know struggled with this this week we we don't turn up wearing those things but we all have them um the the less insecure we feel in Christ, the less likely we are to be honest around those things. Now, there's a limit to how many people you can share with. That's true. There's a limit to how much you can say often. And I think Paul here takes an an enormous risk. But if nobody risks anything, nothing changes. And so Paul invites the possibility of change to happen in his relationship by initiating reconciliation. And I think for me, this becomes a template for how if I have a fractured relationship, I should act in those situations. So if I have a fractured relationship, I shouldn't sit there saying, well, they need to come to me. 
You know, Jesus is quite clear. If you read Matthew 15 and Matthew 18 and you put those two passages together, one talks about how if you know a brother has something against you, you should go to them. Huh? Okay. Uh, it's very important that, you know, sometimes we sit there and go, oh, you know, I think that person has something against me, but I'll wait until they come and talk to me. Right? Well, one of the passages does say that. If you do have something against somebody, you should go and talk to them. So both those things are true. But if everybody sits in their corner waiting for somebody to come to the other, nobody's going to do anything. The relationship has no prospect of being restored. I once preached on that passage in Matthew 18 at a church that I belonged to and I heard that people in the, in the small groups were saying during the week, it all depends on your personality what you do with that. Rubbish. What utter rubbish. And I was glad that somebody gave me that feedback because next Sunday in church I, I was able to say I heard some rubbish during this week. Because it's just not true. I mean, this is irrespective of personality. Sure, some of us are more willing to embrace and deal with conflict than others because of our personalities. I get that. That's normal. But none of us are actually off the hook when it comes to dealing with these things. Read Matthew 15, Matthew 18 around that. But always, it's to sit in the context of love. We do this because we love people, not because we want to correct them. And that's a very important thing. You know, when Jesus talked about this in Matthew 18, he talked about going and winning your brother over, right? Which is about, I want to be in relationship with you. It's in the context of love. It's not in the context of just wanting to correct somebody and point out that they are wrong, but rather you want to be in relationship with other people. And that's what Paul was articulating here. I want to be in relationship with you. I want it to be like it was. I want to go, want it to go back to being as good as it was before. And I'm confident that we can do that if we work this thing through together. And that's why you need to establish recovery as the goal. Paul is very clear in his writings here. Uh, he wants them to open their hearts to him so that their relationship can be restored. And you'll notice in here, although he talks about them closing their hearts down and withholding their affection, he's actually not particularly critical of them. I don't know whether you pick that up. He's not particularly critical of them for their behaviour. In fact, he communicates some understanding because he realises that his letter caused them hurt. But he establishes his goal that he wants to be together. So when you're dealing with somebody, when you have a problem with someone, when you want to work something out, it's important to frame for them the goal. I'm talking with you about this because I want to be in good order with you. I'm not talking to you about this because I think you're a bad person. I'm not talking about this because you've done the wrong thing by me. I'm not talking to you about this because I, I really wonder about your faith for having done something like this. I'm talking with you about this because I want to be one with you. You know, we talked this morning about uh, taking the communion and I, I noticed that Josh used the expression, we take this as the body of Christ. You know, there are times when as the, the body of Christ we hurt and offend one another, we let each other down and if we don't restore those things, we actually fragment the body of Christ. And I'm talking about the church when I use that expression. So we need to establish recovery as the goal and in any reconciliation process, you need to own your part. 
And Paul does that here, despite that funny kind of apology. He does own his part. He recognises that his letter caused them hurt, even though that wasn't his intent. I'm sorry that it hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt you. That wasn't my intent. And I can imagine if that was a face-to-face thing, well, we were hurt. So what do we do about that? But it's not a face-to-face thing. Uh, Many years ago, I did some training with the Justice Department here in Victoria uh, on mediation training. And it was run by people who weren't believers. But I can tell you that the whole mediation training, though they didn't realise it, was anchored in biblical principles around how you sort out conflict between people. And I was so embarrassed on one occasion because I made good friends with one of the lecturers who was a lovely atheist man who I, I really liked him a lot. And he said to me, he said, you know, Christian people are the hardest people to do mediations for. And I go, oh, how so? And he said, oh, because they, they have these things that they call convictions that are just things they like to hide behind, not to give something to somebody else. When that's coming from an atheist directly to you, that's, you feel quite condemned about that. That was his experience of church people, that they wanted to hold their ground and not be willing to give any ground in love for the sake of reconciliation. How sad that at least for that person, the church has that reputation through the grid of his experience. Never let us be those kind of people. Let us own our part in any relationship breakdown. You know, one of the things that I like about no-fault divorce in Australia, though I'm not a fan of divorce generally, let me just give that little caveat, um, is that at least we don't have that torturous thing we used to have when I was a young person where people had to prove how bad the other person was in order to be divorced because we know that it takes two people to make it succeed and it takes two people to make it fail. And at least our law recognises that. So I'm glad of that part of our law around divorce. And then seek a fresh start. Paul was seeking a fresh start in their relationship. He was asking them for that. Okay, we've been through this process. I've apologised to you. I've owned my part. Can we start all over again? Can we find that again? Can you find it in your heart to forgive me so that we can start all over again? That was the kind of thing that Paul was doing here. Now, I said to you that the outcome of this is uncertain. It's not clear to me what happened as a result of this. If somebody knows the answer to that, I'm... I'm really happy because I'm looking for that. I'm actually looking for that answer. Um, but this reminds me, and I wonder whether we have it like this. This reminds me that when you initiate a reconciliation process, the outcome is always uncertain. Isn't it? You know, like if, if you have somebody who is a friend and you've had some problems, in going to them, it's, You're uncertain about what's going to happen. You can never be sure. Like, are they going to arc up and become more angry with you? Are they going to withdraw more? Are they going to become aggressive? Are they going to tell you about all of the pet things that they hate about, have always hated about you? Is it going to get physical? Right? Are they going to go and talk to people about you and what you've said to them? What's going to happen? It's uncertain, isn't it? And sometimes we let that uncertainty stop us. I'm afraid of what might happen. The trouble with that is, although it's uncertain, 
we can be certain what will happen if we don't do anything. And we know that if we don't do anything to restore a relationship, the relationship will remain fractured and continue that way forever. So that is for sure. At least with the other side, you've got two possibilities. It can be fixed or remain fractured. But this one is certain. So I would always go for this one over this one because at least there's a chance of something good happening out of that space. But we also need to remember that we're not responsible for how somebody reacts. We're not responsible for how somebody else reacts to us. Paul laid his heart out here. He gave himself. He made himself completely vulnerable and open to rejection again. But he did his part. But he was not responsible for what the other person did or didn't do. And when you're initiating a reconciliation, you are only responsible for your part. You're not responsible for the other person's part. Now, you know, relationships are the best when they're completely reciprocal. You know, I love you, you love me, we love each other, it's great. That's the best in relationships. But that's not always the way that it is. Sometimes love is not reciprocated. Sometimes efforts to reconcile are not responded to. But I'm not responsible for what the other person chooses to do or not to do. I'm only responsible for what I choose to do. The only person I can take responsibility for is me. And that's what Paul was doing here. He was taking his responsibility in the relationship as far as he could to put the relationship right, to make things right, to restore. And I, I, I wonder whether this is all left uncertain because it's a lesson to us about the uncertainty of what may or may not happen. We don't know. You don't know. But you know that if you don't do something, things will only get worse. If you do something, things may get worse, may get better. I choose that option over the other. You know, Paul says in the book of Romans, as far as it's possible for you, live at peace with everybody. He doesn't say as far as it's possible for everybody else's choice, live at peace with everybody. He says as far as it's possible for you. So in relationships, do your bit. Do your part. Uh, See what God does with what you do. The outcome is uncertain, but God has promised that he is with us, that he's in us, that he'll always be with us, he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. And even if we try and it fails, he is still with us. And you can have the contentment of knowing that in your heart and from the fullness of your heart and from the openness of your heart, you've done all that you could do for that relationship to bring restoration. That's what Paul was doing. And I'm praying that God will help me to be that kind of person in my relationships. And I'd like to pray for us today that he would help us all to be like that in our relationships. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to reconcile the world to God. But you also came to reconcile people to one another. That in your cross, not only is the possibility of reconciliation with God possible, but reconciliation of people, people of all tribes, nations and tongues from all around the world. And yet when we break it down to our own small worlds and our own families, 
in our own neighbourhoods and even our own churches, there are times when we're in positions where we are at odds with one another. And I pray that in those moments in our hearts, we would be open enough before you to be open with one another, to initiate, to reach out, to love, to express affection and to seek to draw close with those with whom we've had a disagreement or some kind of problem. Lord, your word tells us that uh, all the world would know we're your disciples if we love one another. Help us, we pray, to be, by your spirit, to be lovers of God and lovers of people. And for this to play out in these very practical ways, where at times, frankly, Lord, it gets hard. Pray for anyone today who's struggling with a fractured relationship, that you'd help them on their part to do what they can to be restored, but also, Lord, to give them release in their spirit if they've done everything that they can do, all that's within their power to be restored and yet not found a ready reaction from the other. Would you give them your grace in the midst of that as well? Thank you that all of this is possible, as we were saying before, in Jesus and in what Jesus has done for us. That through Jesus Christ, we have your Holy Spirit with us every day, enabling and empowering us to do the works that God has for us to do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.